know that I lived there for a little bit, a couple years, um, 2013, 2014, and did a lot of stuff there. I've shared different testimonies from that time there of what God was doing, you know, in the country, in my own life. Um, but after I got the disease, came back, started school again, all this stuff, God was teaching me a lot of things, and he had been starting to give me fresh strategy for Haiti. And it was about, you know, we've got to train the church to be the church. We've got to establish leaders, train leaders, establish the church, because foreign aid is really dividing the country. A pastor that we met with, he's a national leader in the country, and he said, what has divided the Haitian church more than anything else is uh, money from foreign aid and white missionaries, foreign missionaries, yeah. That's divided the church more than anything else because the church divides over money. They're, they're in poverty. So if a foreign aid comes in or foreign missionary comes in, they think money, opportunity, um, which is unfortunate, and that happens a lot of places. And this pastor, we were, you know, kind of sharing with him the importance of establishing churches and training Haitian leaders to lead the church so that they can go out and do what they've been called to do in their communities, in their countries, etc. And it's really exciting because the Haitian church is very bound by tradition, very bound. Like we were talking to one pastor who's part of the Assemblies of God National Network, and he said there are actual people outside the AOG churches that have sticks with them. They're standing out there with sticks, and if someone's not dressed rightly to come to church, which women, it would be skirts or, you know, covering their shoulders, head covering, and the guys have to wear suits and nice shoes and jackets and all that stuff. If they're not dressed rightly, those people will literally point at them and say, you can't come in here. It doesn't matter if they're in the slums. It doesn't matter if the people don't have the money for the right clothes to wear. You are not allowed into that church building because of tradition from what foreigners have brought over within denominational tradition. That's not biblical, right? So each denomination could have traditional things that they do that say you have to do this to be the church, but really are not things that the Bible teaches that we have to do to be the church, right? Like a Sunday morning service, this is a form for us. We choose to meet like this. The Bible doesn't say we have to meet on a Sunday morning. The Bible says we must fellowship regularly with one another. We have to be receiving the teaching, engaging in the teaching so we can be established in our faith. We choose this format because it works for us. But I can't go over to Haiti and say, you have to meet on a Sunday morning, and then you have worship, and then you take a tithe, and then there's someone who gets up and preaches. That's none of that's in the Bible, right? None of that's in the Bible. It's a form. The form's not bad. We can use it. But the church is so so bound by stuff like that. So we're trying to get leaders there to have a paradigm shift where their whole mentality about what churches changes and aligns with what the Bible says, principle rather than form, right? Form function over form. And it's really exciting. We started with one first group um, in the Antioch School, which is what I'm currently enrolled in, and that Acts course that we do is part of that school. 
and we're studying with them, and they're studying scripture, and it's like God is bringing to light truth, and it's changing the way that they live. It's changing the way that they live within their families, how husbands treat their wives, how husbands treat their families, because that's a very awkward, like, not good traditional way where the husband's just, like, um, does whatever he wants. He can go sleep around with different people, and it's cultural. Even if he's a believer in villages, like, it's, it's just, like, a weird thing, and they, it's just part of their culture. And so now they're starting to see all these truths come out as they study the word, and they're saying, oh, my gosh, my life needs to change. And, wow, the church has so much more power than what we knew. There's life. It's supposed to be family because it was never family. It was tradition. It was a Sunday morning service. And so now they're, they're having all of these changes come, and they're implementing them into their church gatherings where they're now saying, we need to be a family, which is so exciting, right? So we have a first group like that. We started a second group. We're training them in these things, studying, challenging them. We had a lot of discussions. I was very tired because I was doing a lot of translating, speaking in Creole, blah, blah, blah. And by the end, I'm like, I need to go home. <laughs> I want to go back to Carmel and speak English with my folks with my folks, my people, <laughs> my peeps. But so today my message is going to come out of some of the things that happened in Haiti. And, you know, we talked about Joseph last Sunday, and we're going to go back. We're going to be there again. So Genesis 37. And I don't know if any of you read, I had encouraged last week to read, not, not last week, the week before, because we were out last week. Um, to read the story of Joseph. If you haven't yet, read it. Read it. Go. It's so good. So Genesis 37 is going to be the chapter we stay on. Um, and today's, if, the, if there was a title to this message, it would be, how, m how much are you willing to be inconvenienced for the gospel? How much are you willing to be inconvenienced for the gospel? Um. There were one of the first, uh, our first big meeting with our group started Thursday night. And a good friend of mine, Wobinson, he came in, and we were so excited to see him or whatever. And he comes up, and he's, oh, I'm so excited. Like, God's doing stuff in Haiti, transformation, blah, blah, blah. And, and so we start talking to him. And he, we ask him how he's doing. His wife lives in the States. And he starts to share about how difficult it is because she can't stand Haiti. She can't handle what goes on there because it's extremely corrupt. And she's trying to get him to move to Florida where she lives. They've been married like three years. They have kids. She's trying to get him to move to Florida to say, get yourself out of that corrupt nation and come here with me. And he's saying, I can't leave Haiti. God has given me a vision for this nation. I am going to be an agent of transformation for this country. And then he starts to relate this story. In 2014, his sister who lives in Canada sent him some money so that he could buy 24 acres of land, buy some goats, and start a business so that he could support his family, 
and uh, support the church and do the work that he's feeling called to do. So he creates this thing, and he has tons of goats, which is a huge business there, right? And he's a businessman, so he's, like, loving it. He has people who work for him on the land. He's doing well. God's doing so much in his life and through him. One day he gets a call, and his workers say, Robinson, you need to come now. A bunch of armed men have come to the property and are saying they're taking it over. And he goes, what? What do you mean? He said, well, we don't know. Like, they're here. They're saying they're going to take this land that it now belongs to the president. The president wants this land. It's his. And Robinson's like, what? How could that happen? Like, this is my land. I have the paper. So long story short, he he goes around, starts talking to people. What can I do? Those men that work for him get arrested for being now on the president's land. They get arrested and put in jail. Robinson goes to the police and they say, you owe 50,000 goods, which is $1,000, an impossible amount for a Haitian to have. Like they make a dollar a day on average in that country for work. One dollar a day, which is 50 goods. So they're saying you need 50,000 goods to free these men, the innocent men that have now been imprisoned because his land was taken. And he's like, what? I don't have that much money. I don't have that money anywhere. What do you mean? Well, they said, well, you better find it if you want your friends to be free. That's the only way. So he's like, what am I going to do? And he's talking to people he knows and all this stuff. And he ends up going to the court. He shows all his paperwork. This is my land. And he says to the judge, look at me. Now, I'm like crying while he's telling me this story because I'm like, what injustice? I can't believe this has happened. And he goes, look at me. I'm a young man who went and studied abroad, came back so that I could give to my country, so that I could bring transformation to my country. And here you are. You come onto my land. You take it from me. You arrest the men and then tell me I owe money that I don't have. You're ruining my life. And the judge says to him, has compassion on him, and says, I know, but my boss, the government, says I have to do this, and there's nothing I can do about it. What I can do for you is give you a piece of paper that says you can go get all your goats and take them off the land. He's like, I'm sorry, that's all I can do. So Robinson goes, oh, my gosh, okay, I'll take the paper. He takes the paper. He goes to the land. The armed guards are all there. They let him in. He takes the goats, but then he has to transport them to a friend's thing, and half of them die along the way. And then he has to get the money, gets the money, frees his friends. And now he's telling this story, and he's like, he has this huge smile on his face. And I go, Robinson, why are you smiling? I'm, like, crying, right? Because I'm like, I can't imagine we're living here, right? Someone comes in, armed people, steal our land, force us out, arrest all of you, and say we have to pay to get you free because our president has decided that he wants this land. I mean, what type of injustice? Like, that is so wrong, so wrong. We can't even imagine it happening here in our country. And he goes, you know, so many people. My sister called me and said, Robinson, 
move to Canada. Come here, get out of the country. You can live here with your family. You can get a job. And he goes, he said to her, Mom, no, my country needs me. God has called me here to transform this country from the inside out so that I would be a light. Can't you see this is darkness? And he starts to share about how in that time, the thing that kept going over and over in his mind was God will fight for me. God will fight for me. God will fight for me. And he said, so many people said, Robinson, you need to fight back. You need to fight back. And he said, in time, but right now, God will fight for me. And he rebuilt from that place a different business where he's printing and whatever. And he says, you know, there's been so many injustices done to me. And every time he said, there's something inside of me that burns. It fuels me. That type of opposition, that type of persecution fuels me to say, ah, I'm going to fight for my country. I'm going to fight for God to come and pour out over Haiti so that there can be change. And he's running for government and everything. Like he's going full force after this thing. And you could tell it. He was just like fueled. How much are you willing to be inconvenienced for the gospel? Something inside of him said, which is the gospel. He had received the real gospel and said, like that message we said, he threw away his old life. He said, this is my new life, and I am not giving up. It doesn't matter what comes against me. It doesn't matter what's stolen from me. It doesn't matter. I have given my life for this purpose, and I'm going to go after it, and the enemy cannot put me down. So then we get into another meeting, and I'm like in awe at this point, like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even know this. This is my good friend, and I didn't know he's been through this. We get into our meeting with the leaders, and we get into the afternoon session, and we start, we're in a discussion, and some of the guys, some of these pastors start to open up, and one man asks for prayer, and he says, I was a pastor for nine years in a very dangerous town, and he said, my denomination pulled me out, shut down the church, even though there were people there, and said, you can't go there anymore because it's so dangerous. There were like gang wars and everything. And he's crying now. And all these other pastors, are this Pastor Obed, he's a pastor in Cité Soleil, which is the most dangerous slum in Haiti. And he says, listen, young man, if God has called you to that, that place, you need to go there without fear. He said, I have been in a church in Cité Soleil in the most dangerous zone in that slum where every Sunday the gangs would come in and steal our tithe. They would come in and steal all that money every Sunday and threaten them to kill them unless they gave it. And he said, you know what I did? It fueled me. Same language. It fueled me. I went to those gang leaders and I said, do you know the power you think you have has no comparison to the power of our God. And he will fight for us. So you better stop doing what you're doing because you're not coming against us. You're coming against God. And they completely stopped. He was fueled by the opposition. Can you imagine every time we gave someone coming in with a gun and saying, I'm taking that money? Who would give any more? 
But these people still gave as unto God because they knew it as a principle. No, we're giving unto the Lord. He will fight for us. He will fight for us. And that pastor didn't run, so he was encouraging this younger pastor. There are people who need you there. You need not run. You need not fear. Then another pastor stands up, Pastor Wiljan, and he goes, listen, brother. And he's planted like 22 churches. Listen, brother, the very first church I planted, I built the entire structure. I spent my own money. I gathered money. We, s- we built the, the building. Within a few months, someone came and burned it to the ground because they did not want us in their town. They hated us. The gangs came and burned it down. And he said, I wept that day, but then something fueled me. And I said, no, the enemy will not keep me down. I will rebuild and I will plant more churches. And he went and he rebuilt in that town and then multiplied to 22 different churches churches all over the region. The persecution that came against them fueled them to press in more. It did not deter them because they had received this full gospel that said, I've given my life unto this purpose. I have a vision. I don't care what comes my way, what opposition comes my way. Take everything because I am going after this one thing God has called me to. And I will not run. I will not hide. And they were sharing stories. Those were just three that I decided to share today. But they kept sharing every pastor, opposition after opposition after opposition. And here they are saying, we will not run. We will not hide. How much are we willing to be inconvenienced for the gospel? We can't even imagine some of those things happening because we're in this country that doesn't have that type of corruption. But there are other types of opposition that comes against us. Joseph, in Genesis chapter 37. We read about this, we talked about it um, the other day, but there was something that stood out to me that I want to highlight this this as opposition here. In verse 4, So we know that Jacob's his father. He has a bunch of sons. Joseph is his favorite. He gives the tunic to Joseph. Verse 4, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Jealousy causes hatred among brethren. In James, it says hatred is like murder, or uh, Jesus even talked about that. He said, I'm not saying even if you murder someone, I'm saying if you have hatred in your heart towards someone, it's already murder, right? He took the law up higher. So he said, they, this is saying, they were so jealous of him that they hated him. They murdered him in it, their hearts. Joseph has those dreams And he shares the dreams with his brothers, with his family, and all this excitement. God's given me a dream, right? Just like these pastors, God's given me a dream. 
and I'm going to accomplish this dream. Wow, listen. As his brothers burn with jealousy. In verse 11, it says, his brothers were jealous of him. After he shared the dream, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So then his brothers, it says in verse 12, then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing in the flock? Pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. A man found him. Behold, he was wandering in the field. A man asked him, what are you looking for? He said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me, where are they pasturing the flock? Then the man said, they have moved from here, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph, Joseph went after his brothers and found them. When they saw, verse 18, when they saw him from a distance and before he came close to him, them, they plotted against him to put him to death. Hatred turned into, because of jealousy, turned into this murderous plotting in their hearts, literally against their brother, against their brother, their own brother. Hatred against these Haitian men of God that were past planting churches and bringing light to these communities. Hatred born out of jealousy or the seed of the enemy caused these gangs to rise up, burn churches down, steal the tithe or the president taking his land. So they plot against him, and we know what happens. He gets thrown in the well, and they end up selling him. Greed. Selling him for money. What's Joseph in all of this process? And we don't hear much about what his response was. But what do we see happens? from He, he gets sold. Judah, verse 26, Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? So even a deeper thing is like, if we kill him, we don't get anything out of it. Stink. If we kill him, so let's do something where we can gain from him. Let's sell him. Let's get money from him. So they see the Midianites coming and they sell him for 20 shekels of silver. Verse 30, Reuben comes back. He returns to his brother and says, the boy's not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the tunic in blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this. Please examine it to see whether it's your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So, wow. What opposition against Joseph the dreamer, who has a dream from God, a promise from God, and his brothers plot to kill him, sell him into slavery, and yet he still goes forward. 
He doesn't say, I'm not going to serve Potiphar. He doesn't buck out in rebellion. He doesn't go into depression. What does he do? He serves with, with all his might. And how do we know that? We know that because in the next, not in chapter 38, because that's a side story about Judah and Tamar, but in chapter 39, it says Joseph becomes successful in Egypt. He served with all his might. He said, I won't put let this put me down. I mean, that's not scripture, but I'm, I'm imagining this from even my friend's stories, you know. I'm going to serve. I'm going to give what I'm going to give. And God gives him favor because he says, I'm not going to give up. He becomes the most successful, favored man and put is put at the top of Potiphar's people. What happens? Opposition comes against him. Potiphar's wife, right, says to him, sleep with me, sleep with me, sleep with me, then lies about him says that he raped her. He gets put into jail. What kind of opposition? And yet Joseph still holding to the promise of God. How much is he willing to be inconvenienced for the promise of God? He's saying, well, this is happening, but God promised me something. Take everything. God's will will be done. Just like all these Haitian pastors, take whatever you want. Take all my money, take my house, burn my building. God will fight for me. God will fight for me. I believe Joseph stood in that same faith. God will fight for me. Maybe he went through times of sadness and depression. I mean, I I would think he's human, right? I would be so... These are hard things. You know, think about some of the hardest things in your life that came to you and said, I don't want to give up. Uh, I mean, Kayla was even sharing this morning. It's kind of like she didn't want to give up because she just wanted to go someplace else. But in a sense, it's saying, I want to give up. Like, this is hard. I don't want to have to deal with this. Can I just run into my room and close my eyes and pretend like it's not happening and say, God, I don't want this anymore. I'm tired of the hard life. But none of them responded that way. When I lived in Haiti and would there were different difficulties of just living there, the heat, sleeping on the floor, bugs everywhere, cockroaches in your hair at night. Yep, that happened to me multiple times. And disgusting. Yeah. So you're saying and I'm saying, how much am I willing to be inconvenienced for the gospel, for people to know him, to be obedient to what God has called me to do? I'm willing to lay on the floor. I have to sleep on the floor every night. Yep, willing. I'm willing to eat cornmeal twice a day, every day. I'm willing to be in the heat 24-7 with them for the sake of the gospel. What are you willing to give up in your life? If there was a lack of food, if being in the church caused any sort of opposition towards you, which probably all of us have experienced at different times, where you get pressed and pushed and you say, oh, the denial of self, the denial of my right to have my right, the denial of saying, that's my land, give it back. That's not what he did. He stepped back and said, Lord, fight for me. You must fight for me. And he found peace 
and strength in this place of saying, I'm not giving up here. I could easily run and do something much easier. <laughs> could, Ka- could Kayla, I hope you don't mind me using you, but could Kayla say, it's much easier for me to be at my old place because it's comfortable, I know people, I like it. Would it be easier for her to say, I'm going back? Yeah, it would be. But she's chosen to say, no, I will be inconvenienced. I will deny myself for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of what God's called me to do. And we each, we need to come to this place of resolve where the opposition of the enemy fuels us. I mean, our our first world problems are a lot different than the third world problems. Buildings being burned down, property being taken unrightfully. I mean, I think of one of our issues, and I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle ours. I'm just saying they are different. And if we look in perspective, we might as well thank God that I don't have to go through that. <laughs> thank you, God. We, are, we have it way better off. But I'm thinking our car, we use our car a lot to travel everywhere and do ministry. And, and Tommy's given up, you know, a lot. He loves, he liked having a very nice car and all this stuff that he had a great job that he could pay all of his bills with and didn't have to think twice about money. And he said, I'm giving it up because God's called me to this. And now the car's having tons of problems and we have to pay X amount of incredible amount of money that we don't have to fix the car. And it could be like, forget it. We're not traveling anymore. Forget it. We're not doing that ministry stuff anymore. Forget it. I'm going to get a full-time job so I don't have to worry about money. But he didn't do that. He said, no, God has called me to this. Is it hard? Yes, it's hard. But God will fight for me. He will provide. Do you see what I'm saying? This opposition, how much are we willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel? And it goes along with some of his his word even about comfortable, being comfortable. How much are we willing to be uncomfortable for the sake of Christ? Joseph sold into slavery. Joseph in prison for years. It was years before he was finally, the promise was fulfilled in his life, and he was put over everyone and put in this position of authority. Why, though? Something is formed in us in the place of opposition where you must humble yourself and cry out and say, God, I cannot do this without you. I need you. It forms something in us. Philippians 2 says Jesus, the Son of God, gave up his right to being God, gave up all of his power to go to the lowest place of death on a cross for this reason. He was given the name that is above all names. He was exalted to a place of authority, that place of opposition where he had to humble himself and say, God, you must fight for me as your son. He humbled himself to the point of death. For this reason, he was given all authority. Joseph humbled to the point of prison and slavery. And he said, God, you must fight for me. For this reason, exalted to highest authority. It's an inside-out, upside-down kingdom, right? Misty Edwards 
sings about that. It's an inside upside down king. It's been a long time since I've heard the song. But it's so true. It doesn't make sense. You have to go low to go up. You humble yourself, become a servant of all, and you're given spiritual authority. You allow opposition, the enemy's attacks. You don't run from it. And you say, no, I will stand. No, I will stand. And then God gives you strength and power, and you see him come and fight on your behalf. And you're like, see, he said he would come through. He's coming through. And that's where all the testimonies come. If, if these men had not stood firm their ground, they would not have the testimony that they do now to say our God's great. Robinson's still waiting for the full testimony of he believes he's going to get that land back. I loved it. He said, Sean and I are saying, are you going to fight for this? Are you going to go? He said, well, yeah, but I'm not strong enough now, and I'm waiting for the timing of God. I'm going to get it back. Just wait. I'm going to get it back. And it got me so excited. I'm like, yes, you're going to get it back. And what a testimony to say the enemy came in and stole something from me, but God took it back. I think of your situation. The enemy came in and is trying to steal fr something from you, but God will restore. Whew. And then we say, glory to God. He has saved us. He came through like he said he would come through. And we stand in the promises. It gets me excited. It gets me, like, pumped up literally in my being. I feel strength because I say, okay, this inconvenience, this opposition, the things that are coming against us in each of our lives, whether emotional, physical, in the natural, these things are coming against us and should produce. I'm going to allow it produce this resolve in my heart to say, oh, I'm going to press in more. I'm going to declare that God is the one who fights for me. I'm going to stand and watch the deliverance of my God in my life, and the enemy will be made to look like a fool because my God is all-powerful, and he will do what he says he will do. And we say for Terry, and we keep praying, and it seems like every time we pray, more opposition comes our way, more blockage seems to come, and we say, oh, it's going to push us to press in in prayer. No, Terry will be free. Her household will be delivered. Her household will be saved. Those types of things that we, we're, we're going spiritual and it seems like the attack gets harder and harder. And it, it could say, oh, forget it. We should stop praying for Terry because every time we pray, something worse happens. Maybe we shouldn't pray anymore. No, that's the, what the enemy wants. He's attacking more because we're pushing in more. But there's going to come a point always when you push in and you push in and you push in. You come head to head with him and God goes, Poof! and the enemy's right before your eyes down. And he has no power and you just go, God knocks him down and then you just have to put your foot on his head. Right? We don't knock him down. God knocks him down and we go, Poof! You said my enemy would be under my feet, 
there he is. I'm going to push, and he's pushing, push, push. It's like that game chicken. Who's going <laughs> to get out of the way first? Well, if we keep pushing, the enemy's going to flee. It says in James, resist the enemy, and he will flee from you. We don't flee from the enemy. Oh, he's coming. No, he's coming. And we run into the battle, and he flees from us. We resist him, and he flees. Ah. <laughs> I'm so pumped. Yeah. So, Lord, yeah, you want to share something? I can. Okay, share the dream. Okay, so I had this dream where I was on a hill, and um, I think I was a prisoner or something, and the enemy was, like, relishing in the collections that he had of mine. I don't know if they were treasure chests or suitcases, but he realized one was missing. He's like, I have silver, I have gold, I have bronze, and, and then he was missing one, and he, he got so angry, and he looks right at me. He's like, it's inside you, and I'm going to get it, and he comes at me. And he has, like, this giant machete sword, and he, he says, I'm going to slaughter you, and I'm going to get what's inside of you out. And um, and he went after my arms. He was I, I felt like he was trying to peel the flesh off of me. And at, at one point, I just looked at him, and I grabbed his sword really quick. I stuck him with it, and then he shrunk, and I impaled his head on the spike fence. <laughs> so I just feel, if you know the situation, like, what a perfect example of um, of stepping on the enemy. I just like I was just thinking there. I was dreaming, sorry. And I just felt like there was no mention of God in the dream. But when I woke up, like it gave me hope. It gave me hope that that's what's going on in, in this in this world today. That I was given this gift of God. But it totally went with what you were. Yeah, that's exactly it. We have something inside of us that the enemy cannot take. He can take anything. And that's a hard place to come because you say, take it and think about Job, right? Yeah, probably the worst example in the Bible because it's like his whole family gets killed, all his wealth gets taken away, and he says, I will not deny God. I will not blame God. That type of thing. You can't take what's inside of me. Exactly that dream. I think that's for you. I think that's for all of us here as a community that we're at this place. We're in the midst of this battle, and we're going to push in, slay the enemy, or God will what smack him down. That's the picture I get, like God's hand just like, poof. <laughs> the enemy's so small to him, he's just like, poof, and we step on his head. Or impale him, <laughs> which is even cooler, yeah, like warrior. We're going to impale the enemy. <laughs> so, God, we just thank you today. We exalt you high above all of our problems, high above all the opposition in our life, over Terry's life, over Kayla and Stephen, me and Tommy, Renee. We just declare it over Jane Marie. You are high above it all, and we declare today, God will fight for us. We declare in the spiritual realm, God will fight for us. We will stand and watch the deliverance of our God.
God. And we declare that over our Haitian brothers and sisters as well. God will fight for you. God will stand on your behalf and he will deliver you of the power of his mighty right hand. He will wipe out the enemy and will stand and say, victory belongs to our God. Victory belongs to our God and our king forever. And we stand in that victory, God. We thank you for strength. I pray that you would give us a vision as opposition comes, that we would be fueled by the opposition to stand and declare the promises of God, to declare in faith our families will not be taken. Our families will not be taken. You can't take what's inside of us, the hope that God has placed inside of us. You cannot touch it. We declare that in the name of Jesus. We declare it over Terry's family. Once again, breakthrough right now in Jesus' name. You will not have the over the hold on her family. Darkness will not prevail over the night family in Jesus' name. That the light of God will be powerful on her behalf and flood her household today. We thank you for it, God. That you have given us the victory. So we allow this inconvenience, the oppositions, the self-denial to fuel us into pursuit, to run into the battle and slay the enemy because he will flee. And we believe your word. We believe your word above anything else. Help us in our weakness. Help us in the times where it's difficult. Help us, God. We believe you will. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit. We just welcome. I can feel him. He's doing it right now in us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the strengthening, the inner strengthening that you give us, that warring on the inside that you've given to us. Thank you. Thank you. We love you, Lord. Thank you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen.